The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Hey Jay, it's really great to hear that the Russians are going to bring the American astronaut who's on the space station with the Russians right now back to the Earth via the Russian spacecraft. So tell me, Jay, I mean, that's an important project. We really want that to continue. We want the cooperation to continue, right? Absolutely. And I was quite surprised that they weren't going to upset the apple cart further by not cooperating and bringing the young man home from space after a uh, a full year at the space station. What's going on is absolutely horrible. I expect the worst of the Russians, but in this case, they're following through with their commitment. And it will be great talking to Larry Bell, who's had so much to do with the space station and so much contact with the Russians with regard to our space activities and the International Space Station. And so this is just going to be an outstanding program. So go ahead, Tom, and tell our audience a, a little bit about Larry. Okay, sure. Our guest today is Larry Bell, an endowed professor of space architecture at the University of Houston, where he founded the Sasasqua International Center for Space Architecture and Graduate Program in Space Architecture. And that's the only program of its kind in the world, Jay. In fact, at 84 years old, Larry still teaches there with grad students from all over the world. Larry co-founded several commercial high-tech and space companies, including one that grew to more than 8,000 professionals and involved Neil Armstrong. Pretty cool. Larry was one of the very first Americans to be invited to meet with top Russian officials following the implosion of the Soviet Union. And he had his name placed in large letters on the Russian proton rocket that launched the first crew to the International Space Station. Larry received Russia's two highest awards for his contributions to international space development. A few months ago, he co-authored with Buzz Aldrin a new book called Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. I bought that book last night, actually, and on Kindle, and I've read the first, oh, 20 or 30 pages, and it's, it's really a great history so far of how this all got started. So welcome to the show, Larry. Well, thanks, guys. It's good to connect up with you. Uh, we've been in communication for a very long time, particularly on the on the climate front, and uh, and Jay actually gave me some encouragement to write my second book, Scared Witless, Profits and Profits of Climate Doom. So it's really good to tag up with you. Thanks so much. Larry, we're splitting the program up into two. Begin talking about your work in space and then on uh, climate and electric cars. But I'm guessing that our audience is not familiar 
with what space architecture is and what a school of space architecture uh, would teach. So could we start there? Yeah, I think the, the best analogy is we think of space uh, typically as very specialized. It's kind of like climate science where you have a lot of specialists and some we call scientists and some we call engineers and they work on all different facets of mission planning and designing spacecraft and so on. Think of space architecture as kind of being the general practitioners. You think of a doctor as being a medical doctor being specialized in you know, certain parts of the body or, or in, you know, whether they're internists or surgeons, et cetera. And space architecture really are like the general practitioners. We look with, at all aspects of uh, space development from the planning of the missions to how do you launch stuff, uh, designing the orbital vehicles, typically habitats, <clears throat> they have life support systems, they have to provide radiation protection, they have to support people, provide all the contingencies, something goes wrong, plan for it in advance. Some of the facilities, of course, if they're orbital, they're operating in zero gravity, <clears throat> if they're on the surface of the moon or Mars, they have partial gravity. You got to figure out how to land them. You got to figure out how to get stuff off of the lander, onto the surface, move it around, connect it all together, provide the power, uh, radiation systems, radiators, et cetera, et cetera, support the external activities. So really space architecture is holistic. It's uh, looking at virtually every aspect of, of a mission plan, uh, what its goals are, how do you support those goals? And then it gets very much into the specific design of, of systems, typically habitats, you know, typically human systems where people may be aboard these rather cramped facilities for many months at a time. And I think of the term architecture as literally, you know, putting together the spaceship, the nuts and bolts and all that, and your explanation that uh, in space, it's a, a general practitioner, like a doctor that would look at every part of the body. So that's an awesome uh, explanation. And I, I understand it better. I'm sure our whole audience does. What was your background that brought you to this phase of your career? Well, I came to Houston in the late 70s. I had headed the graduate program in industrial design at the University of Illinois. I was a professor there. And I Came to Houston for a lot of reasons, a very dynamic city, but particularly the space was interesting because there's so many problems to be solved. It was very innovative, the whole notion of having uh, facilities, particularly that would support crews for long periods of time. And so I came here to really, in part, to become part of that grand adventure and in the process of course, got involved with the uh, Johnson Space Center. We began doing some contract work with the, uh, through the University of Houston. I founded the Sasakawa Center here in the early 80s. At that time, our work was getting quite a lot of attention globally and enough that attracted interest in Japan. And uh, we were gifted with a rather large multi-million dollar gift to found the center the Sasakawa Center and, uh, and its graduate program. Incidentally, it's, that's about 40 some years ago. 
the, the center has been financially self-supporting since that time through contracts. We supported most of the major aerospace companies, major one being Boeing, and uh, but others as well, as well as the different NASA centers, Marshall, as well as Johnson Space Center. And then I founded several companies, co-founded one with NASA's chief engineer, Max Vajay, who's no longer alive, and Neil Armstrong was on our board. Buzz Aldrin has been a participant involved with us for almost from the beginning and several other companies as well. So I've been very much involved with the commercial side of space. I've worked with the Russian space program. As you mentioned, I was one of the first Americans invited there following the implosion of the Soviet Union. So I came to know a lot of the cosmonauts and some of the top leaders of the Russian did they Did they work with you on actually designing the International Space Station? Was that some of your students, uh, people you had trained? What actual, when it came down to actually building that system that has been in space for a very long time, what was your level of involvement, perhaps more than just instructing those who worked with you? Some of the companies that I founded, and uh, one was uh, a company I founded with an architect named Guillermo Trotti. It was called Bell and Trotti, and we did much of Boeing's work. There were several competitors for the initial phase of the space station called Space Station Freedom, and we did much of the design work for Boeing, as well as at that time Martin Marietta, for the uh, Space Station Freedom from the really from scratch and. Uh, we actually built full-scale mock-ups in our fabrication facility and, and so on. So, and, and our, our staff were the people we had actually trained at the University of Houston. We do contracts. We have had done contracts now throughout where we do funded work to do research and design for aerospace companies, principally contractors, rather than more than, than NASA itself. Most of our, most of our graduate students are hired before they graduate to work for commercial companies. And basically they're all over the world. Uh, our students uh, work for, uh, they're, they're employed in uh, space programs, European Space Agency and so on. So we're very hands-on. I'll mention too that with regard to the, uh, I thought it was interesting, the relationship between NASA and the former Soviet Union, Russia now, regarding the space station, to me is reminiscent of Apollo-Soyuz, where we had a Cold War going on during Vietnam War. And at the same time, we had our astronauts and cosmonauts shaking hands when the Apollo and Soyuz vehicles docked together, kind of symbolizing, kind of can't we get along? I happen to know both some of the cosmonauts and Deke Slayton and astronauts that were on board that mission. And I think this view that maybe Space is the place we come together where there can be war on the ground. And I think in the case of space, it's, it's a hopeful sign that we as humanity can also continue to keep the spirit alive as we look at space station as an international facility that has elements that were built in Japan and Russia and, of course, the U.S. and Europe and so on, where it's this small little village where, where we continue to continue to, uh, to work together, speak different languages, but have a common dream. And as we now 
think about going to the moon and Mars. And Mars is a special priority of Buzz. And Buzz is one of my, my closest friends. Uh, our friendship has grown over a period of many decades. Uh, his dream is, is really going to Mars. He, I think Tom mentioned reading the first part of our, our book together. And in that book, I mentioned in the very preface that Buzz is someone that seldom talks about going to the moon. So seldom talks about that experience. It's always the future. It's always, we're going to go to Mars. How do we get there? Tom and I did a show with a mathematician fellow who working out a lot of the details of how we would get to Mars. And he felt we had to go to Phobos first. And Tom Weissmuller was a good friend of mine before he passed. He also felt we'd have to go to Phobos. But in the time frame, I'm very pessimistic that we'll get to Mars earlier than a few decades from now. What, what do you see as a reasonable time that can be looked forward to of getting to Mars? I think it's more an uh, international policy issue, of course, not to uh, underestimate the complexity of going to Mars. It's really orders of magnitude more complicated than going to the moon. But of course, Tom was also a close friend of mine. I want to mention here, and you mentioned Phobos, and this is something you may not be aware of. My interest in, in the climate stuff that we share was really originated with Fred Singer, who visited my office some many years ago, because Fred and I and Buzz Aldrin were all interested in what you mentioned of using Phobos as a staging area for going uh, to Mars, one of the moons of Mars. And Fred had that interest, I did, and, and Buzz did. So when Fred Singer first visited me at my center, it was on the, for the purpose of discussing staging missions from, from Phobos, or potentially Deimos, but mostly Phobos. That was during the course of that discussion, Fred, who had, was the founder of the U.S. Weather Satellite Service, this, this was uh, founded in 1979, the satellites were showing a different story over the equator, where you would have expected to see warming that wasn't being signaled in the satellites. And Fred mentioned that, and that was really what triggered my interest in climate that we share. So someone that you know very well, of course, uh, the late, great uh, Fred Singer was one that was really an advocate for Phobos, as I was at the time. I'm less of an advocate for that approach now, but nevertheless, uh, that's uh, still an intriguing possibility. Larry, when young people are listening to this presentation, do you think that they should be considering the graduate program in space architecture after their bachelor degrees, let's say in mechanical engineering or physics or things like that? Well, you're asking a rather biased individual here. <laughs> uh, we have students from all over the world, including Iran in, in the past and China and Japan and Central America, you, you name it. This is an opportunity to mention that we actually have two graduate degree programs. One has a point of entry, and these are in the College of Engineering. One point of entry is people that have more design-oriented backgrounds. These are, for example, architects, industrial designers particularly, and uh, people that are really more uh, conceptually oriented in terms of uh, a really design, and that's including us in both design. They can get a, a master of space architecture degree. 
We have another another degree program. It's it's a uh, related program where they can get a, a combined degree in aerospace engineering and space architecture. This point of entry goes more through the the more traditional civil engineer, electrical engineer, aerospace engineer sorts of disciplines, but they work collaboratively. They, you know, the, the projects we do are, even though there's two degrees, uh, what we do is so interdisciplinary that it draws upon these skills. So it's not a them and us, it's a we. We all, uh, we really cut across the interdisciplinary spectrum and we're very project-centered uh, their experiences. You're going to have plenty of talented people working on the future of the International Space Station. But what is your opinion uh, as to the future of the International Space Station? Will it just go on at about the level of operation, sending astronauts from different countries to live on the space station for a period of time doing experiments? Is it going to go on forever? Will it get bigger? Will it get smaller? Will support financially changed? What are your opinions on those things? My interests are very much in the commercial side. I think the company I founded with uh, Max Fajay and two other partners, and then the, we had the first two directors of the Justice Space Center on our board as well as Neil. That was a, the, one of the first really commercial programs. My hard interest really is in the commercial opportunities where first really born with the launch systems in the satellite business, which, which for the first time, uh, government was not the market. It was the commercial sector that was the market. As we look at markets beyond uh, the satellite uh, services, and we look at, oh, we hear much about tourism, for example, and, and, and so on. I think the future is really not, in, in, at least as I would prefer it, where the government role is very secondary and the commercial markets really drive the future. Now, when we talk about going to the moon and Mars, I think that's a different subject because that's largely, certainly at this point, way beyond the sphere of commercial interest. It's, you know, there may be potentials, but, but they're quite some time in the distant. I'm interested more in uh, how we incubate, how we grow these commercial programs outside of government. Uh, as we see the uh, great strides, I think Elon Musk uh, has made a, a great contribution in being able to, to reuse the first stage of a rocket, which, which is enormous cost savings. Of course, the main barrier to space is launch and getting payloads in orbit within a reasonable budget. And I think that it's the commercial sector that will drive that just as it drives everything else. We often think of the space program as something that's incubated a lot of commercial products and developments. I think perhaps even more so is the private sector, for example, with computing systems that didn't exist during the Apollo, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo program. Those, com those computer systems came from the commercial sector rather than from the space sector. And so I see the real strength, the real opportunity as being driven by the commercial sector, which does things so much better 
than government. Well, uh, and, that, and that, that, that leads me into asking you, I'm guessing that you have uh, met, perhaps worked with uh, both Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos in their uh, space companies. What are your opinions of the work they're doing? I haven't worked with them. I had an invitation to visit Musk's facility in that particular time period. Buzz's son, Andrew, was having a, a conference that I was very much obligated to attend. And I didn't, so I didn't act on that invitation. But uh, I think that Bezos and, and Musk are making great strides. Uh, others, I think Berber Chan uh, played an important role as a marvelous aviation designer. If you don't know his name, is, is I don't know how many aircraft in the Smithsonian, but we have great talent, uh, great innovators. And uh, a lot of our students, I think, as I may have mentioned, our current students are being employed now by contractors who are working with these commercial companies that are looking and working to develop uh, commercial facilities. Our facility, our company, was to build an industrial space facility that would operate in low Earth orbit to do material processing. It was entirely privately funded. We we raised over $38 million on a startup joint venture. And then Boeing joined us and as did Westinghouse. And that was an early plan to develop an orbiting laboratory that could exploit the capabilities or characteristics of zero gravity to produce products that couldn't be produced on Earth. Not in commercial quantities, but more to look at how the effects of gravity and convection and other, other aspects that are associated with gravity, how materials can be improved on earth, including pharmaceutical purification processes. So we can see space is really being a test lab for some of the future products and processes that will, I think, continue to change our opportunities on earth, as well as incubator for some of the technological advancements that will carry us. You can understand if you have a facility in, in space or on, on the surface, we're really duplicating the atmosphere and all of the life requirements that we have on Earth. Even a spacesuit is a micro environment. And so from that perspective, when we think of sustainability, you can't imagine a more challenging application of that than to create a small little micro world where people live together and it provides all of the life support that we take for granted on earth. And so sustainability and looking at the health aspects of that are certainly cru crucial. And from space, I think we, we learn a lot more about ourselves, both physiologically and so psychologically, and even sociologically, where we're putting people together in a very cramped condition and they need to learn how to adapt and, and be very proficient and productive. About a year ago, I interviewed Robert Zubrin, and he's the one who says that we should bypass the moon and go straight to Mars, Mars Direct. And of course, he wants us to process materials on Mars so that we make fuel there and oxygen and things like that. But I mean, is it realistic? What do you, Buzz and Neil Armstrong, think? What, what do you think about this? I mean, should we be bypassing the moon and going all the way to Mars? I mean, it's a thousand times further when you look at the trajectories. Nobody would plan to go to the moon to go to Mars. It's not on the same 
highway. Orbital mechanics gets very complicated. Zubrin's a friend of mine. He's a marvelous guy, very innovative guy, and I'm and I'm sure Buzz would Buzz Wooden has echoed that. So Zubrin's plan is to try to do things in a very low cost way. And there's nothing that I'm doing or thinking that would really contradict his logic. He has a long history of being very innovative and building a, a great deal of support among particularly young people. He has this desert facility where people can do simulations and so on. So I think Zubin is one of the real, real early thinkers along this line. Yeah. So if you're going to not use the moon as a stepping stone to the to Mars, what would be the sequence of events that you'd see happening before a Mars trip was actually possible? Moon has another role other than being it's a stepping stone in terms of being a test bed for going to Mars. Mm -hmm. If we look at uh, one of the goals of going to the moon or Mars is to ideally to identify or to develop resources that can be used most particularly as rocket fuel so that we don't have to carry as much from Earth because the uh, gravity well, as we would say, is much shallower. It's much easier to launch from there. So I think the moon is a testbed both for looking at some of the human conditions. The moon's gravity is about is one-sixth of Earth's gravity. The Mars is about a fourth. So we can use the moon to look at ways of developing the power systems. Some of those power systems where we think of on the moon may be applicable on, on Earth as modular systems. And we think of Jack Schmidt, for example, who also one of our climate guys, was the last to, to be on the moon. Geologists very much interested in harvesting helium-3 for future fusion reactors. And that's an interesting idea of fusion. It's always been about 10 years off, but it, it sort of continues to be. But the idea that, for example, helium-3 driven from, by the solar winds, if that could be harvested on the moon as a fuel for fusion, would be, of course, very exciting. Fusion energy could be a game changer as far as our energy future is concerned. Mm -hmm. So that's an example, perhaps. A step-by-step -step approach. First, the moon base then maybe going to the Lagrangian points, then maybe intercepting and passing asteroid and spending a couple of days on it. You'd see that kind of a step-by-step -step approach or would you go moon and then boom, right to Mars? I think we'll see uh, a little bit different than what you suggested. I think we'll, we'll, we'll see the moon as a test bed. What Buzz believes is that we use the moon, but we don't, put, we don't really put our own government astronauts on it but we support the moon and his thought, at least in terms of priorities, is to support the international community that hasn't been to the moon, but, but, but definitely develop the, we call ISRU activities in this issue resource uh, tests that we would use on Mars. Simultaneously, well, while we're using Mars and the moon as a test bed, we would go to Mars. And uh, so it's not either or. We're getting uh, about close to our uh, commercial break here, but it's interesting that uh, Fred Singer, yourself, and Robert Zubrin started in space uh, before getting into the environment. Fred was involved in the satellite launches, gaining information 
Zubrin's been a genius on the space front forever. And uh, yourself and you all have written absolutely spectacular books about climate. So it's an interesting jump that all of you have made. And so we want to move into your work in climate after the commercial break and talk about some really fascinating things you wrote recently in a Newsmax article about the future or lack thereof of electric vehicles. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko knows a thing or two about the immune system. He was nominated for a Nobel Prize for his early COVID-19 treatments, and now he's offering his Z-Stack supplements to our listeners at a discount. Just go to zstacklife.com slash freedom. That's zstacklife.com slash freedom. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. On March 11th at the Energy Conference CERA Week held in Houston, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said, I'm very reluctant to go down the path of electric vehicles. I'm old enough to remember standing in line in 1974 trying to buy gas. I remember those days. I don't want to have to be standing in line waiting for a battery for my vehicle because we're now dependent on a foreign supply chain, mostly China. Larry and Jay, what do you think of Senator Manchin's remark? Well, I hope, Tom, that uh, other people uh, listen to it. And uh, I have been writing and putting down the future of the electric vehicle for quite some time now. I think it's a nice second car to tool around your neighborhood. Uh, it, It is not going to become the one and only family car. It is never, in my mind, going to uh, dominate the American road. And uh, our guest, Larry Bell, has written about it as well. And he's particularly focused on all the not so good things the government is doing uh, to push people into electric cars. So uh, let's start out by asking Larry what his long-term opinion is and hope pleasure with the fact that we've got one Senator, Joe Manchin, 
that is not supportive of them. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think it's part of a much, much larger picture. And again, it harks back to the concerns we share about the, you know, the hype about climate crisis, which, which we don't buy into uh, as a way of driving interest in so-called green energy, which is translates into wind, you know, wind turbines and, and solar panels, which have very limited capacity. They're intermittent, they're unreliable, they're costly and they don't last very long. And, and uh, the, the, the crazy notion that we're going to transform our economy in, in energy, which is 80% fossil approximately globally, as well as in, in our own country, and replace it with a paltry two or 3%, if you believe it, that comes from wind and solar. And I suspect that's even inflated. So the larger question then is, is one uh, ignores the simple fact of where does the power come from to recharge those cars as one aspect where we, we have a, you know, an energy electricity deficits uh, largely because we're, we're killing the main driver of, of our energy systems, which are hydrocarbons. First with the war on coal, and now in the war on oil and natural gas as our administration goes pleading to OPEC and to Venezuela and to Iran to, to increase their, their supplies of, of oil. It's all absolutely crazy. Also at the time where trying, I say we, the government's current, current uh, administration is pushing the crazy nuclear Iran deal uh, with the suggestion that we're going to uh, eliminate their sanctions if, if, they, if they pump more oil, sanction money that will go directly into their nuclear program and continue to support uh, terror in the Middle East. I gave an a, a interview today on Al Arabia uh, uh, news uh, that was broadcast to all the, all the Arab countries. On this very matter, mentioning electric vehicles, and so Manchin, of course, is is right. I think he comes from a he comes from an energy state, a coal state, energy state. So it's not it's not uh, surprising that he sees the irony here that we would go we would kneecap our own energy systems and then make ourselves dependent upon nickel that comes from Russia and then the rare earth materials that come from China and now Afghanistan, since we've abandoned Afghanistan uh, and then prop up uh, Iran and purchase their oil and in any way rationalize that this is going to be a benefit to the climate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds pretty crazy. And also of course, the materials that are used to make the batteries are, they, they result in huge environmental and human rights abuses all over the world. So this is hardly a green vehicle when you actually look at how it's made, is it? Well, of course it is. And we look at you know, the, you know, the main impediment. It's not that we don't have rare earth materials here. We just can't mine them. And because of, because of again, the 
environmental resistance. So instead, we, we buy them from countries like China that uses weaker slave labor and child labor to, you know, to accomplish these things. It's, it's not a, a very humanitarian approach. So, so uh, yes, I think there's, there's certainly a lot of uh, very serious, very serious questions about why we would even contemplate. And then we think of then adding all those vehicles, electric vehicles, of course they represent a, uh, the, the American uh, motor companies and, and also Japanese and Europeans see this $1.3 billion or billion population market in China as a big market in addition to being a supply chain for their essential materials they need for, for batteries, which will, as you mentioned, Tom, wind up in landfills here in this country. Uh, it, the whole thing is very far, very, very uh, short-sighted. Mm -hmm. Why, uh, Larry, why are the car companies, I, I think I read in an article you wrote that the car companies lose ten to $12,000 on every electric car they sell, why are the car companies not resisting all the things the government is uh, doing to make them make electric cars, like increasing the uh, average fuel standard from uh, 43 miles a gallon requirement for the whole fleet in the Trump administration is now being pushed up to 54. It doesn't seem like a good plan for the car companies that do great with internal combustion engines, why are they not opposing it? Because the costs get passed back to, back to the customers. They're losing money, as you mentioned, maybe 10,000 or so per vehicle. And then they use that to escalate the cost of the cars we want, particularly the SUVs and trucks and so on, where their big market is. So they don't lose money on it. It costs more money for, for the, uh, of course, for the for the buyers, and uh, they think there's you know there's subsidy heaven in all this. It would be a great deal more costly if they weren't getting federal and state subsidies for these for their, these vehicles, and then they get tax credits. Uh, and you look at Tesla and Musk, his profits, you know his. He has a tremendous uh, rating on Wall Street only because he's getting tax credits passed to him by the other auto companies. And uh, so it's uh, the number of cars, you know, and you think of electric cars consisting of perhaps 2% two, two of the global and 2% of the U.S. market. You can argue whether that's, that's you know, that's an accurate number. It probably is. But then you also say, well, where are those 2% located? Well, over half of them are in California. They're in a temperate area where it doesn't get cold, uh, where, where the batteries can, can be more efficient, where you don't have to you know, turn on the, you, know, you don't have to drain your battery for heat when you're driving in the winter, where, where batteries don't you know, lose power. So, so and, and who buys those? Who buys those cars? So the people that buy them are the ones that can afford a second car. They're quite expensive, and 
But that, that energy savings they have in their pocketbook is going to evaporate very, very rapidly when electricity costs go up because we're cannibalizing our, our uh, fossil fossil energy. It's going to like six six times in 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 Germany. Germany built all of these wind turbines, as you as you know. A lot of them offshore, where the, you know the life of these turbines is something like fifteen years and, and life cycle, and and the ones offshore are even less because they because of the corrosive effects of the water. Mm. So and so we're building investing money. Now this this I think is and, and now of course you see Germany totally beholden to, to Russia because uh, Germany gets half or more of their of their energy as during winter season now, particularly from from Russia imported from Siberia with the near completion now of the North Stream 2 pipeline. So we're playing a very dangerous very short-sighted game right now, where the cost of a barrel of oil, I think, is going to be uh, a bargain compared to what you see happen with that with electricity costs and the cost to 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 uh, improve our ancient grid power grids. There are three three grids in the U.S. We in Texas have one to ourselves, but we have a already uh, a very creaky old grid that's uh, it's, uh, about a century old. And now we're gonna add all those electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Well, Larry, I've, I've taken into account how much all the grids uh, produce, what our total electric energy is in the United States. And I've been predicting for some time that it's physically impossible for electric vehicles ever to compose more than 10% of all the cars on the road. Where would you stand with uh, that prediction? I think it's, I hope and believe that this is going to be, there's gonna be a sea change in 2022. Uh, My my science friends, climate science friends, and I have a few of them, always kind of said, well, why don't they believe us? Why don't they believe us? Why don't they believe us? And I've said from the right, my first book, Climate Corruption, because it was never about science. This has always been driven politically. Uh, it's been driven by United Nations as a wealth redistribution plan. Uh, and Edenhofer and others have, have admitted that. Uh, so it's, it's really had little or nothing to do with science from the very beginning. It's been a, it's, it's, and then the, of course, the, the whole green movement is either uh, absolutely nuts, because as you say, you you could do anything on the back of the napkin and see that this is very a very time limited strategy. It's it's a dead end. So I think that, and I'm I'm, I'm segueing here, but I think I think there's a there's a huge wake up call when it hits, hits people's pocketbooks, and we're coming up with a midterm now that's Midterm elections are state and local issues. They're pocketbook issues. And uh, they're like, what, what's the cost of putting food on the table? And, and of course, energy is, is the main driver of inflation. Everything has to be transported, it has to be produced and so on. And uh, I think that 
this, as you say, this notion that this is going to come to pass and we're going to have 10% or whatever of electric vehicles, all of that is a bubble to me. I think when people wake up and realize that, that this is a, a pyramid scheme, that none of that will materialize. Mm -hmm. You know, I always find it interesting that virtually none of the environmental climate activists are engineers. Virtually none of them seem to have solid technical training. And it gives me the impression that while some of them may have a good heart, and think that they're standing up for the planet, I get the impression they simply don't know what they're talking about. I mean, what do you think, Larry? Well, I think it's a combination of, uh, so it's interesting, and you know, you, you mentioned my writing. I've written over a thousand articles for Newsmax and for Forbes in the past few years. Wow, it's a big job. I'm kind of a writing maniac, and yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I've written a lot about I've written a lot about this kind of stuff, and uh, and it's, and more with Forbes. I get I get more written feedback, and and on the feedback. Uh, the uh, and also with the same with books, uh, I get you know you have the the trolls, the ones that clearly are working uh, for vested interests, and their in their job when when trigger words come up, they, you know, their job is to is to basically knock your book rating down by by giving a low review or writing these troll reports, and some of them, so so some of it is is really engineered, I think, uh, as a way of really as warfare. Others are just, just very, very naive. They, they have no, uh, no, no sense at all. It's, and, and you're, you're aware of these people, it's a climate of religion. It doesn't matter, um, it really doesn't matter. As, as you know, for one thing, climate's a hard thing to talk about because it's, has so many moving parts, and you and, and it's so difficult to model. And even IPCC has said that it's not reliable enough to make projections on. And uh, we don't have reliable records and and so on. And so there's so it's the kind of thing that's hard to talk to the public about because it's just it's very complex. And and some of the factors that we don't really have a handle on. Nobody does, like the, like the, you know the you know the effect of clouds that that uh, Linson talks about, or 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 we look at the the effects of, of the sun, which Sensmark talks about. There are, there are things that you can't really put into the models because we don't really they're, they're too complex. But Larry, Larry, I'd like to emphasize one thing, and I know all the scientists who have done the greatest work. Uh, in terms of trying to calculate the impact of carbon dioxide on the Earth's temperature. But the one thing, really, in the end, they all agree on, uh, it's absolutely indistinguishable from zero. Uh, nobody can put a, a number on it. It's uh, inconsequential. And unfortunately, that should be at the front of every climate science uh, before you get into the nitty gritty that people give up on and they figure if people write about it and they try to model it, there must be something to it. It is, in my opinion, 
the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on society, and it has only had a negative impact. And so too much of the public actually believes that uh, we have a crisis and must stop using fossil fuel. It's absurd. It's uh, political, as you said early in the program, but it goes on because there are not enough people uh, really calling it what it is. It's a fraud. It's meaningless. And it's all done to change our form of government and redistribute wealth exactly as you said. I think it's more, even more insidious than that. Uh, I think as we look at it, who is, and, and I see it as really pure Marxism. I mean, I, I'll say that. Uh, I, I may have no qualms saying that. But it's, it's, it's infested the universities. When, whenever you have Whenever you have the source of funding coming from a government that becomes very politicized with agendas, and I think it's, we're seeing the same thing with COVID and so on, you know, the so-called follow science, and you see CDC and you can't, you can't believe anything anymore that, that they say. It's because, because when the scare goes away, the money goes away. And I think that the, you know, you and I could mention a few that we won't, universities and, and places where they put out this nonsense and they uh on on and and the, the famous 97 percent fallacy that climate you know the climatists scientists think the world's on fire is of course absolute nonsense but why so then the question is why don't the why don't those who you know respectable scientists because that those, those polls would never stand any kind of scientific test. So where are the staunch, brave scientists that will stand up and, and call this out other than it's mostly retired scientists who don't have to worry about losing their tenure. They've got their pensions. But, but, but to, to be a naysayer that the world's not on fire means you're not gonna get tenure. You're not going to get grants. You're not going to get promoted. And uh, when Lindsay has brought this up and others have, will happen and others for a very long time. The fact is we have our so-called, and can't call it a profession because there's so many facets to it. There's geologists, there's meteorologists, there's, there's astrophysicists, there's, you know, it's a whole, whole bunch of different uh, groups. So there's no such, really no such thing as a climate scientist. We look at it from all different aspects. There's many people, former space people that worked on Apollo here at Johnson Space Center have a very active science group attempting to bring sanity into this. But there's very strong vested interests because when the scare goes away, the money goes away, the subsidies go away for wind and solar and, and, uh, and, the, and the auto dealers stop running to China and the environmentalists uh, lose their lose their power to stop drilling and stop digging for rare earths. Uh, unfortunately, uh, those who do speak out are also being they, you know being uh, shut down by the media, social media. Uh, it's it's a pretty terrifying uh, cancel culture of communication that, that we're seeing. 
mm-hmm. with, with few that are willing to speak out. And uh, we've got the United Nations and you've got so many levels of opposition to, to, to the voices that uh, hopefully it's the pocketbook issues that will win out and mother nature when, when basically at some point in time, uh, we, we see that, well, the glaciers really didn't melt. The sea level didn't really uh, flood the Statue of Liberty and uh, maybe sanity, maybe we'll survive long enough for sanity to prevail. Yeah, I'm specifically, you know, disappointed with the universities because even my own alma mater, Carleton University, for example, I mean, these universities are politically correct enforcers of what I call woke groupthink. And, you know, if you go against the grain on anything, I mean, for example, my my local alma mater, the university I graduated from, Carleton University, on the COVID issue, they constantly say, but the vaccines stop transmission. And they still say that. And I've shown them the graphs and shown them the data that it's simply not true. I mean, it, it may reduce severity of the illness if you get it, but it doesn't stop transmission. And even the scientists say that themselves. But the university leaves it up and it's on the website as guidance to their students. And we're seeing this in all kinds of fields in the universities. I mean, how did it happen that the university, I guess, I was reading recently that there's something like a nine to one ratio of left to right Democrat, you know, cardholders versus Republican among the professors. Is that what's driving this? Do you think that it's so left wing that they just cancel everything else? Well, I think you asked the question. Uh, it, it is it is that. And then you say, well, how did that happen? Uh, you could say the same about journalism. What proportion of journalists do you think are, are say, conservative versus liberal? And, and how do you define liberal? Uh, liberal today, it means, you know, it's, it's come to mean uh, that we identify people first and foremost by race and gender, that we, uh, you know, that you we become globalists where national sovereignty doesn't matter because, because walls are uh, obtrusive. We shouldn't. We shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, control who comes across our border, although almost every country has borders where they have rules. We look at the, uh, you know, of course we can look at the, uh, the uh, teachings, critical race theory, uh, 1619 project, et cetera, indoctrination is going on in schools. But I think, I think we're also seeing a pushback. I think we're seeing what happened in, in Virginia in terms of uh, electing a governor and, and, uh, and other high-level officials as a pushback against education, educational uh, abuses. And we see, I think, I think we see uh, East Coast, West Coast, uh, New York you know, City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, migration of businesses and people to Texas, South Dakota, Florida. I think I think we're seeing uh, I think we're seeing uh, some uh, responses to this now that are making some demographic shifts and other shifts that are that are optim- more optimistic. And, and yeah, well, Larry, I, I'm uh, I'm very optimistic that. 
the midterm elections will be the beginning of the change. Uh, I think the uh, conservatives will swamp the Democrats in the House, maintain a small lead in the Senate. And that is going to stop uh, anything that Biden does that requires a expenditure of money because the House controls the budget. They won't control the country until the 2024 election that I'm confident uh, the Republicans will win no matter who the candidate is. But I'm optimistic, as you are, as you're describing uh, the pushback I am seeing as well. And I like our audiences not to be pessimistic. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And I think uh, we're going to begin coming out of the tunnel next November uh, after the midterm election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to actually recommend two books to our listening audience. One is called Rules for Radical Conservatives, Beating the Left at Its Own Game to Take Back America. And you can listen to it on Audible, for example, which is how I listen to it. And it is sensational. It's really amazing. And the other book is Cynical Theories, in contrast to Critical Theories, Cynical Theories. It's written by Helen Pluckrose from the UK and James Lindsay from the United States. And it talks about the origin of the woke mentality, where it came from and she maintains, Helen Pluckrose, she's the narrator on Audible, she maintains that it is the most dangerous threat to our democracy since the fall of communism in Europe because of the fact that it's simply ruining our society and everything you mentioned, for example, critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera, it goes on and on. Well, we've got to wrap up there, unfortunately. <laughs> our guest today has been Larry Bell, an endowed professor of space architecture at the University of Houston. He has two books on climate change, one I have right here beside me called Scared Witless, Profits and Profits of Global Doom and Climate of Corruption, Politics and Power Behind the Global Warming Hoax. And the book I'm actually in the process of reading that Larry just finished co-authoring with Buzz Aldrin was just published, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. So thanks for being on the show, Larry. Enjoyed it, guys. Good talking to you. That's great. So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. Mm -hmm.